0: Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. In 1868, Iowa became the first state to end the legal segregation of public schools. The challenge that led to the Iowa Supreme Court decision that year is the subject of a new children's book. It's called Susie Clark, The Bravest Girl You've Ever Seen. Later this hour, I will talk with author Jocelyn Hickey Johnson and illustrator Haley Calvin. The book, is published and presented by the Community Foundation of Greater Muscatine and Global Education at the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. And that is where we're going to start today. The Stanley Center for Peace and Security was founded in Muscatine in 1956 with a vision to promote a secure peace with freedom and justice. To tell us about the history of this organization, their mission, and their work at home and abroad, we have invited Keith Porter, president and CEO, to be here today. Krista Reganitter is the program officer for Global Education Programming, and she'll join us in a few minutes. Keith, hello.
0: Hello, Charity. How are you today?
1: Good. Thank you so much for being here. And the Stanley name is one that's familiar to many Eastern Iowans, but for those who are not familiar with the Stanley family, would you take us back in time? And we know the center was founded in 1956 by Maxwell and Elizabeth Stanley, better known as Max and Buddy. Tell us who they are.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to do that, of course. You know, I, I came to this organization in 1987, and so I actually knew Betty Stanley, got to know her. Max had passed away in 1984, so I didn't know Max, but I do feel a deep connection to the family and the, the really amazing things they've tried to do across the state of Iowa and really around the world. You know, I think of Max, uh, Max came back, uh, Max and Betty, as people who, you know, looking back, they had lived through two world wars, Uh, The second one ended with the use of atomic weapons and they were really part of a generation that believed if we had another world war and we used those weapons, you know, it would be the end of mankind. And so Max was really interested in figuring out how we could prevent that. How could we take what we learned from those two world wars and put that into action into a way that would actually make the world a safer place. He was a big supporter of the United Nations and people Across Iowa, may remember uh, Max Stanley as one of the co-founders of Han Industries, still one of the largest manufacturers of office furniture in the world, still headquartered here in Muscatine. He also founded something called Stanley Consultants, which is one of the largest consulting engineering firms in the world, still headquartered here in Muscatine. And he, you know, used some of his early earnings and and uh, wealth to hold meetings with people at the UN. He would talk with the Secretary General on the regular basis. He would hold meetings. And in 1956, he sort of institutionalized that work in the creation of what was then called the Stanley Foundation. And uh, he started that organization with five board members. It was Max and Betty and their three children, uh, Dick, David, and Jane. And uh, Jane Stanley is still, uh, still with us. She is uh, an amazing supporter of what we do. When we had the grand opening for our new building back in June, Jane was here. And so we're we're really lucky for an organization uh, that's been around as long as we have to still have one of our founding board members alive.
1: When the Stanleys founded this center, what has become the Center for Peace and Security, I mean, they had this global vision already. And Muscatine is not exactly a seat of power in the, in the world sphere. So why... Was it so important to them to have the foundation centered in Muscatine?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, Max really had this idea. You know, one of the things that he said that we still talk about a lot is this idea that, you know, the the, the big problems, the biggest problems facing the world today uh, can't be solved by any one individual country. You know, whether it's nuclear weapons or climate change or mass atrocity and genocide, There's no one country in the world that can fix those things. Uh, We have to have cooperation. And now we talk about the fact that it's not just the nation state. It's all kinds of stakeholders that operate at a global level that we need to engage with, including subnational actors and city actors and individuals. Uh, But it's going to take that kind of cooperation. And I think Max and Betty both really believed that doing it from you know, New York or Vienna or Washington DC would have a different feel than it would from doing it from Iowa. That we could really present this, this ideal of collaboration of people who can work together for the common good. And it's not without its challenges to do the kind of work we do from Muscatine. But I think that on balance, there are some really good benefits we get from being located here and not in one of those policy capitals.
1: It has also led to sort of a, a dual track for the organization, investing, uh, of course, in this global work, but also in work in Iowa. Tell me a little more about that.
0: Yeah, you know, Max and Betty were also, I mean, part of the reason we're here also is just because they're so committed to this place. And, um, you know, they, they've they invested, they invested a lot here. Um, and of course, the businesses that they founded continue to invest a lot here in, in this community, And that's that's been really meaningful to them. It's been really meaningful to the family, even though the family, you know, none of the family members even live here anymore. But one of the things they started back in the 70s really was an approach to uh, global education in our local community. And that global education can can encompass teachers and students and adult learners, people of all kind. And so we've really made an investment here in the community, and you'll hear more about this from Krista, to really make sure that we are applying those global education principles here, that we're helping people learn uh, about the rest of the world, but also about America's place in the rest of the world, and learning about how we can uh, manage conflict in productive ways, and really make all of us into global citizens. That was a really important part of Max and Betty's mission.
1: There have been a number of changes at the center just in recent years. Uh, your organization, like pretty much every organization on the planet, was really challenged by the pandemic. Tell me a little bit about a recent uh, refocusing of the center.
0: Yeah. So in 2019, so not that long before the pandemic, uh, we went through a long sort of process of figuring out, you're doing kind of that external evaluation how are we viewed by the collaborators that we have in the world, by the policymakers and other stakeholders that we're trying to influence. And we got a lot of great feedback. And, you know, we we are a private operating foundation. That's our official tax status. And that means that, you know, while we have an endowment that we work off of and that generates the funds for everything we do, we don't make grants. And so having that name, the Stanley Foundation, uh, was a little bit misleading, and it sort of struck, caused some confusion. People were, you know, rightfully so thinking, oh, well, this is obviously a grant-making institution. And uh, we got a lot of great feedback that sort of reinforced that understanding that, that the name was a little confusing. So we went through a long process with our board, including Stanley family members and key people on our staff. and uh, And we went through this rebranding process that resulted in this new name, the Stanley Center for Peace and Security, we actually held one, uh, one of our major policy events late in 2019 uh, where we rolled out the name, we did a big launch, um, and then we almost, you know, within what, six, eight weeks, we were in the lockdown. So, <laughs> so it wasn't the greatest timing. Uh, but I think that the, that the rebranding um, has really done all of the things that we hoped it would do. We kept that Stanley name that was very well known, not just among our collaborators, but among policymakers and experts that we try to influence. But then we also sort of changed the rest of the name so that it uh, more clearly reflected who we are and what we do.
1: And you also moved.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So that's really exciting. You know, I said, you know, we talked about how we're founded in 1956 and we've had various office space that we've leased, you know, around Muscatine. Um, But when we made that decision to change the name and we talked a lot about our location and our board was very clear that they understood The challenges of doing the kind of work that we want to do from Muscatine. They also were very encouraging to say, you know, Keith and to the rest of the staff, do whatever it takes to overcome those challenges. You know, make it a great place to work. Add in the kinds of flexibility and the kind of benefits that will really attract great talent. And at the same time, you know, we need, we decided we needed a permanent home. We needed a place that we could um, that, that you know would reflect the way we actually work, uh, the kind of collaborative spirit that we want to have, the kind of transparency that we want to have. And we decided, hey, we should actually invest in a home somewhere in the Muscatine area. We looked around at 50 or 60 different places. We talked to our architects, Newman Monson in Iowa City, um, and they, you know, they, they, did a, they put us through a process called the all Staff Visioning Exercise, where you know we all got together and really talked and dreamed about what this new space could be. And we had lots of priorities, lots of things that we wanted to do. But one of the highest priorities was to make this place as environmentally sustainable as possible so that we could really walk the talk. We're an organization that works on climate change, so we wanted to put that into action. And they introduced us to a lot of different standards. Some of your listeners have probably heard of many of them, like LEED certification. But the most uh, rigorous uh, environmental sustainability standard out there is called the Living Building Challenge. And there are only uh, 30, 35 buildings in the world that have achieved this standard. And we decided we wanted to be not only the next one, but we wanted to be the first one in Iowa to achieve this standard, so we built this new building. We actually bought the uh, what had been sort of abandoned old uh, Musser Public Library in Muscatine that had set unused for a few years. We bought that building, we renovated it, and we have done it to the standards of the Living Building Challenge. And now we enter into soon, we'll enter into a one year certification period where we'll have to prove that we are generating more power than we use, we're treating all of the water that's Uh, sustainably that falls on our site, that we're increasing the health and happiness not only of the people who work in the building, but of our neighborhood, and a whole bunch of other standards that we have to that we have to meet. And we moved into this new building in March.
1: That feels like a move that that is really a public reflection of the values of the organization. Is that the goal? Is that what it feels like to you?
0: Yeah, really, in a couple of ways. One is we've never had a really high profile anywhere. Like I say, we've leased office space, but we've never had like a big, you know, well lit sign out front of our office saying who we are. Well, now we do. We're at a a very uh, busy intersection in downtown Muscatine, and so everybody knows who we are. But that also, this idea of taking our values, and we have a very, you know, firm set of core values. And turning that into a building, sort of the physical manifestation of our values, into brick and mortar, is really something that's pretty magical. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm sitting in the building right now, and I'm still amazed that that, that we were able to accomplish as much as we did.
1: Well, we're going to take a short break. We will be back. We're going to learn more about the Stanley Center for Peace and Security in Muscatine, Iowa. Keith Porter is here, president and CEO of the center. Krista Reganitter is going to join us as well. She is program officer for Global Education Programming. And a little bit later in the hour, we'll talk about one of their most recent projects. It's a children's book. It's called Susie Clark, the Bravest Girl You've Ever Seen. And we will meet the author and illustrator. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for
0: IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. These days, there's an app for everything. Now there's an app for everything you love about Iowa Public Radio, local newscasts and stories from the voices you trust, your favorite public radio shows and podcasts, plus the music to soundtrack your day. You can have it all in the IPR app. Find it in app stores or at IPR.org slash app.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, we're going to talk about a new children's book. It's called Susie Clark, The Bravest Girl You've Ever Seen, Desegregating Iowa Schools in 1868. I will talk with the author and the illustrator of this book for children. Right now, we're focusing on one of the organizations behind this book for children. It's the Stanley Center for Peace and Security founded in Muscatine in 1956 with a vision to promote a secure. Peace with Freedom and Justice. I'm talking with Keith Porter, President and CEO of the organization. Krista Reganitter, Program Officer for Global Education Programming, is also here now. Hello, Krista.
2: Hello, Charity.
1: Wonderful to have both of you here with me. And I want to talk uh, with both of you about the, the different aspects of work that the center is doing now. And uh, Keith, I'd like to start with you because I know that one of the focuses of the Stanley family back in 1956 was to try to avoid a global nuclear war and nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation. That's still still something that the organization focuses on. Tell me about that.
0: Yeah. So in our three um big global challenges that we look at, Uh, nuclear weapons uh, policy is one of them. And in all of our areas, we really try to have a uh, a deeply strategic focus on what we can do with our limited resources. So in each of our three areas, we really go through a process of mapping out what others are doing in the field, uh, what policies need to be advanced, uh, who's who's doing good work? Who's doing work that could be amplified? And really look for ways to leverage our little resources, you know, to 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 really have the biggest possible inca- impact. And so, in the nuclear work over, you know, uh, sixty years, we've we've done lots of different things. At the moment, we're really looking at advancing uh, risk reduction. Uh, this is the idea of helping states states that have nuclear weapons uh, to prevent the use of those weapons. So, how can we? you know, look at the existing risk reduction measures and improve them. Um, How can we uh, add more risk reductions? How can we expand the number of stakeholders so that it's not just states that are involved in these risk reduction measures? So it's really about trying to uh, prevent the use of nuclear weapons and making sure that, you know, that we are all safe from those weapons, which continue to exist in the world in very scary numbers um, how can we make sure that uh, that those are never used in under any circumstances?
1: And how do you carry out that work? Yeah,
0: so like I said, in uh, expanding the kinds of risk reduction that's going on right now, making sure that policymakers are aware that there is a risk reduction system in place and that it needs to be strengthened, that uh, people at all kinds of levels of government need to be aware of this. Uh, we certainly look a lot at the fact that we have uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear armed nations that are at war right now, and we need to make sure that those risk reduction systems are in place. Um, a really important part of it, that, a part that really um, uh, is exciting to me is this idea that we have actually in, you know, over the last 70 years, since the end of World War II, there are various times where we have actually prevented, not we, the Stanley Center, but we as humanity, Have prevented nuclear, the the use of nuclear weapons. We've come very close, very, a few times. And those times need to be studied. Those uh, stories need to be shared. You know, we've actually had throughout our history times when we have drastically reduced the number of nuclear weapons in the world. When I was in college, there were, you know, something like uh, the United States had over 30,000 nuclear warheads combined around the world. We had probably more than 70,000 nuclear warheads. People don't realize that today we have about 1,500 in the United States, probably 4,000, 3,000, somewhere in that range in the world. Uh, That is incredible, and that's due to the hard work of diplomats and policymakers and politicians who've really gone through the slog to make it happen. And those stories need to be told as well. We can't just throw up our arms and say, oh, well, you know, this is just the way the world is, nothing we can do about it. And someday those weapons are probably going to be used and it's going to be horrible. But, you know, what can we do? Uh, we can do a lot. And we have done a lot over history. And We need to keep those stories alive.
1: Another focus uh, is mass violence and atrocities, obviously very closely related to what we were just talking about.
0: Yeah. So in this area, you know, one of the things that's really important to know is that people aren't Uh, People aren't born with a predisposition to mass violence and atrocities and genocide. These are things that are done uh, for uh, usually for political reasons. These are people who uh, there are people who create the context that allows mass violence and atrocities to happen. And uh, we have, again, a lot of history about this. We know the kinds of steps people take to make this happen. And we know the kinds of things that can be done to prevent it how can we actually create resilient societies where people uh, resist the call to violence against their fellow citizens how can we hold countries responsible to protect the people that are within their borders and we've done again that same kind of uh, outreach where we've uh, mapped what others are doing tried to find places where we can really make a big difference and I think one of the things that um, that I'm really excited about that we're doing in this uh, work is a network that we're a part of called Peace in Our Cities, because so much of that global violence, uh, the predominant amount of global violence each year occurs at the urban level. When we're thinking about identity-based violence, and we're hearing a lot about that in the news today, uh, most of that happens at the urban level. And we are working with our partners to bring cities together so that cities who are committed to reducing that violence, ending that violence, can learn from each other and create their own networks and resources so they can uh, uh, be even more effective at that task.
1: Uh, there's so much that we could talk about on, on each of these subjects, and we can do that in the future. But we <laughs> I just want to remind, remind everyone that we're just getting a very surface oversight right now, um, or overview right now. But let's talk about another huge subject, uh, climate change. But your focus is not just climate change, but climate change and systemic environmental racism.
0: Yeah, so... Let me just picking up on what you just said a moment ago, Charity. You know, we have a staff of really super smart people here who make all this work happen. And I am, you know, I'm kind of sitting at the tip of the iceberg here, but uh, you know, I'm telling you about the work that they have done, not work that I have driven myself. I've, you know, tried to put the pieces in place to make these things happen. Uh, But we have a really uh, great policy programming director, Jen Smizer, and she has program officers that work for her that really do the work in these different policy areas and they are really amazing and they are traveling all over the world all of the time doing this kind of work um in the in the climate change work you know in 2015 in the paris accords there was something really important that happened that i think we kind of take for granted uh everybody in the world was talking about the two degrees celsius goal trying to keep trying to limit global warming to no more than two degrees celsius above you know what the planet's temperature was at the start of the industrial era and in paris there was a really significant push by middle-sized states smaller states to say no that's not good enough you know that that we need to keep it we need to keep it to at least 1.5 degrees celsius above those pre-industrial levels and that got in at paris that got a prominent place in the paris accords and it would have been really easy for the governments of the world to leave Paris and go back and say, well, you know, we've got to work on that 2.0 goal. That's, that's what we got. And then um, a lot of civil society and a lot of those smaller states really put on the pressure and said no. The Paris Accord said we should really strive for 1.5. And now 1.5 is the common, you know, that's the mainstream understanding of what we're trying to do. But that didn't happen, you know, by accident. That happened through a lot of work, through a lot of, you know, really committed people holding governments' feet to the fire to say, no, whatever your plans are, you have to plan for a 1.5 degree uh, increase maximum. Now, who knows? You know, we may overshoot that. But I think that in the long run, by the end of the century, we are on track to to limit global warming to that 1.5 degree, or at least we have the plans, we have the wherewithal to do it. What we need is the political will to make sure that we actually can keep that global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius.
1: And systemic environmental racism. I mean, we all we all know if we've been paying attention that there are people who are so much more vulnerable to the effects of climate change than than other people. And and that is a really important element of the conversation of climate change. Why have you chosen to make it part of your focus in, in such a high profile way?
0: Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing about climate change is that the people who are impacted most or the people who are the least resilient to the impact of climate change are also the people who had the least to do with creating the problem. So, you know, in the developed world, you know, we are the ones that created this industrial society and it's led to all kinds of benefits, you know, for us and for mankind. Uh, but it also, you know, generated, you know, Primarily through the use of fossil fuels, uh, this problem of climate change. And so, people in the global south who really didn't, ha- you know, who weren't the driving force for the industrial revolution, they're the ones who are suffering the most. They're the ones where, you know, they're not, they don't have the resources to build the higher seawalls, to uh, pay for more, uh, you know, air conditioning or whatever it is that we do in the West to overcome the, the, the impact of climate change they're the ones who are really paying the price. And so in some ways it's kind of a continuation of, uh, the, the, of colonialism and imperialism by saying that, you know, we're gonna not only take the benefits, but we're also gonna shield ourselves from the negative impacts of climate change. And there are other people in the world who are going to suffer uh, and they're gonna suffer for a problem that they didn't really help create And so uh, we really want to focus on that. Another piece of this or something connected to it is something that we call the just transition. So, you know, when you think about people who are going to be displaced in this massive economic change that we're going to have to get to uh, uh, to 100% renewable energy, there are people who are going to be displaced. There are uh, cities and and countries that are going to have you know massive uh, transition issues, we need to support them. It is in our interest to support them because if we don't, they will probably you know elect leaders who will fight against uh, all of these efforts to fight climate change. They will be disgruntled. They will take action. They will push back against these efforts. So you know beyond just the simple moral reason, you know the human rights reason that we need to help these folks. We need to help them because it's in our best interest. So we want to fight against that systemic racism. We want to fight against. Uh, we want to. We want to promote a just transition so that everyone gets the benefit from this global economic change that we're going through right now.
1: I'm talking with Keith Porter, president and CEO of the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. And Krista Reganitter is also here, program officer for uh, global education programming at the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. Krista, I mentioned earlier with Keith that there's kind of a a dual track to the work of the Stanley Center and, and one of the the ways that is represented, I think, is by your office. So tell me a little bit more about global education programming and and that mission at the center.
2: Of course. Yeah. Just listening to Keith, first of all, like, fills me with so much pride to be working for this organization but there's a lot of themes in our policy work of cooperation of resiliency building of networking with other organizations who are who are doing similar work and I think that we kind of take some of those those components of what the Stanley Center is known for and we translate it to our local community so you know our goals are to look for opportunities to foster inclusive dialogue by you know, bringing our community members together, bringing in guest speakers to our community um, to celebrate the, the diverse perspectives that are represented here in Muscatine, but also globally and to promote equity so that our community is more equipped to build a more peaceful and just world. And so we we kind of take some of those those components that that we do so well in the po- policy arena and bring it to our local community. So. You know, just as Keith said in the beginning, we know that it's going to take everyone. Individuals and organizations are, are just as essential to building a more peaceful, just, and sustainable future as our governments and and those large organizations and and companies.
1: And when you say local community, of course, you mean Muscatine, But also, this work reaches beyond Muscatine. International Day is is a great example of that. Briefly, tell me about what that is.
2: Yeah, so we do a lot of different partnerships with the University of Iowa, specifically the College of Education and international programs. And International Day is an example of that. We've been hosting this event since the 90s, um, where it's a one day conference that we uh, invite middle school students from all over eastern Iowa, really within driving distance, I guess, Um to the University of Iowa and we have a keynote speaker and we have breakout sessions uh, and everything kind of has a theme around the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So just different opportunities for kids. This year, our keynote speaker was JJ Kapoor from Culture All out of Des Moines. And he talked about, you know, the, the right for everyone to be able to be appreciated and valued for their own cultural diversity. And he was a great speaker. And then our breakouts had all kinds of different things. Some of the the folks from the Stanley Center and our journalism and media team, they used short documentaries to talk about peace building and, you know that this concept that peace isn't the absence of violence, but it's an active thing that we have to participate in. Um, But all kinds of different breakout sessions and just a, a fun day for kids to have conversations with kids from around you know, in other schools than their own, um, and learn some of these concepts.
1: So we only have a couple of minutes before we're going to turn all of our attention to this Susie Clark book. But but I want to
2: ask you just briefly,
1: how does this fit into your mission publishing both this book for young kids? And I know there's another book on the horizon for older children as well mm-hmm. that tells the story of the Clark family and desegregating Iowa schools.
2: Well, Keith talked about how each of our areas that we have a, a, a strategy or a map of, of the ways that we want to work towards the goals that we think are important. And one of ours is looking at local contributions to peace, justice and sustainability and how we can use those to engage our community in conversations and connect those to, you know, the local approach to the global and this is one of those examples where talking about a, a very, you know, unknown story that Iowa was the first state to desegregate schools and that that happened right here in Muscatine. A few years back, we named our middle school, uh, well, junior high, it became two middle schools joined into one junior high, and it's now Susan Clark Junior High. But a lot of folks don't know why <laughs> we named it Susan Clark Junior High, and we felt like a picture book and a young reader book. were really great ways to promote that story. So the Community Foundation of Greater Muscatine, we kind of joined forces and and I'm just so pleased with the outcome of this book.
1: Well, and we will find out much more about the book and the Clark family in just a moment. But Krista Reganetter, thank you so much for talking with me today. Of course. Krista Reganitter is the Program Officer for Global Education Programming at the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. Keith Porter, thank you.
0: Hey, thank you, Charity. It's always great to talk to you.
1: Keith Porter, president and CEO of the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. Coming up in just a moment, we will find out about the new book for children, Susie Clark, The Bravest Girl You've Ever Seen, Desegregating Iowa Schools in 1868 by Jocelyn Hickey-Johnson and illustrated by Haley Calvin. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Iowa Public Radio is your local NPR network station. Community-based and listener-supported we connect you to the news, music, information, and ideas that shape your world every day.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. In- 1868, Iowa became the first state to end the legal segregation of public schools. The challenge that led to that Iowa Supreme Court decision that year is the subject of a new children's book. It's called Susie Clark, the Bravest Girl You've Ever Seen. And it is published and presented by the Community Foundation of Greater Muscatine and the Global education program at the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. And we are going to meet the author of the book now. Josh Hickey Johnson is here, better known to many in Iowa as Miss Rocky, co-host of the North End Update in Waterloo. Hello, Miss Rocky. Good morning, Charity. How are you today? I am great. Thank you so much for being here today. And I'm just going to read the first page of this book as we launch right in. Susie the Brave was also Susie the Queen who was born in a town called Muscatine. You say you never knew there was a queen in Muscatine? Well, get ready to meet the bravest girl you've ever seen, Ms. Rocky, you know, I know that there are people who are familiar with this story um, and there are many that are not. And when the story of desegregating Iowa schools back in 1868 gets told, it's often referred to as the Alexander Clark story. That was uh, mm-hmm. the name of Susan Clark's father. And of course, he sued on behalf of his children. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how you got involved in telling this story this way? Well, thank you, first of all, for
3: having me today, Charity. Um, I think I got involved through a friend um, that kind of recommended me for the story because I'd written children's book before. Rochelle Chase, I think, put a bug in the Stanley Center's ear, and the rest is history, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Was
1: this a story that you knew well before you took on the project? Well, actually... um,
3: our pastor, Reverend Abraham Funchez, took a certain interest in the Alexander Clark story, oh my, years ago, I think when it was first uncovered um, uh, and it brought it to light. And I, I was fascinated with it. And so when Rochelle talked to me about the project, I was more than interested because I had heard of the story before and to highlights, the young girl that actually took the first steps, like Ruby Bridges, in you know the Brown versus Board of Education way back in 1868, I was like, oh yes, I really, really want to be a part of this amazing uncovered history project.
1: Absolutely, and Alexander Clark was was really a remarkable man. There are so many. Elements to his story. We've talked about him on this program in the past, but he served as the United States ambassador to Liberia af- after this desegregation happened in 1890, 1891. He he just did so many things with his life and working his way up um, from being a barber at the beginning. Um, focusing the story on Susie Clark is... Interesting, because, of course, um, you know, Alexander Clark fought this legal battle, but Susan Clark had to go to that school. She had to go to a school where all the other students were white. Thinking about telling that story, how did you want to approach it?
3: Well, it took a while. In fact, I just looked at some of my first drafts and how I basically I didn't tear them up because I wanted to refer back to them. But I was trying to tell the story in a chronological way and without the rhyme. But I think I just decided to use the rhymes because of the age group that we were supposed to um, cater to. And um, it turned out better that way. And I thought I could um, emphasize some of the key points in rhyme. So, um, yeah, writing the first couple of pages was so frustrating And in fact, that that title page that you read wasn't even going to be included, but it kind of got me started. And when I showed it to uh, Krista and the rest of the team, they liked it and improved and included it in the story. So it was um, a laborious job for sure, trying to come up with the rhymes that fit and uh, make it all work, and the cadence, uh, and reading it, the cadence work. So it was a challenge for sure, but I think
1: we kind of made the point. And this is, of course, a story inspired by history, but you use a little uh, poetic license in the story. And there's an element uh, where Susie's having a hard time getting the courage that she needs to go to this new school and, and to face what you know, the the kind of discrimination that black people in Iowa and everywhere were facing on a daily basis. And Susie's mom comes to her with a handful of okra seeds. Yes. Tell me, tell me where this idea came from.
3: Well, um, I wanted to mention that Iowa was a leader in uh, desegregating schools, and I think a lot of Iowans and people up north in general were naive more than Um, not racist. I think that, because even in my Ropes in the Kitchen book, I remember uh, someone referring as my grandfather's slavery slavery story was interesting, quote unquote. So, you know, I think a lot of white people in, in the North were just amazed that Black people were so resilient and had moved up North. But while writing this book as a mother and grandmother of Black children, Uh, Understanding the the challenges of today's society, I had to immerse myself in Black lore, folklore, and legend, and culture through generations of survival. So I found their inner strength that it took my ancestors to have the impact on the future generations. And and I think about my own kids and some of the little things that I would say to them to encourage them on a daily basis. And knowing that, and then all of a sudden I saw this film, a clip of. uh, Women braiding seeds into each other's hair for the middle passage, or even transferring from one plantation to another, as far as having food source to start with, or in 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 an enslaved person's life, there wasn't much tangible things to grab onto. So things like and
1: and no way to hide. Anything right. on their their body, they had n- everything taken away from them. So this idea of braiding seeds into their hair, yeah. so that that's something that that happened, and what a, what an amazing way to pass on a family legacy. Oh, thank
3: you. I, I was really happy that that um, that video clip that I saw lended me this idea. And also went along with history because you know um, Susie's grandmother was given away as a gift, you know. Which mm-hmm. how how interesting is that, right? Um, so it's, there's sad components of the story, but I think that the okra seed, or whatever a parent uses to get their child motivated to do something so brave. Um, were, were needed in this
1: story. I am talking with Jocelyn Hickey-Johnson. She is the author of Susie Clark, The Bravest Girl You've Ever Seen. And I want to bring Haley Calvin into the, the conversation now, too. You stay with us, Ms. Rocky. But Haley Calvin oh. is also here, the illustrator of the book. Hello, Haley. Haley, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, welcome to the show. And Haley, I know that uh, you live in Clinton, Iowa. Tell me how you got involved in this project.
4: Yes, um, I think the community college that I went to here put a bug in the Stanley Center's ear and I submitted my portfolio and they liked
1: what I had. So then I was commissioned for the project. Did you have a familiarity with the story of the Clark family before you worked on this project?
4: Um, I actually didn't. And that was kind of, it was really shocking that I didn't know that. But I mean, over here in Clinton, there was no talk about it. So it was really important and interesting to hear her story for the first time.
1: Absolutely. How did that make you feel to, to learn this story and know that something so monumental happened so close to home?
4: Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was really inspiring because like, um, in my community, um, I was the only African American girl to really, you know, get into the art scene. And so like to know that Susie was also feeling those same type of feelings going to an all white school, it kind of, you know, made me connect with the story a little bit more because it's a familiar story for many girls in Iowa who right. are minorities.
1: Although more than a 100- hundred, 50 years later i mean how does that make you feel to think about how how this resonates even today
4: yeah i mean i'm really thankful for the work that you know the clarks did because without it i wouldn't have been able to go to u and i a college and graduate with a degree so i mean this story is just so important and you know i think we can always do more and push for more equality and you know, better things for diverse people.
1: So I was just talking to Miss Rocky about the idea that she had of of these seeds that uh, Susie's mom was able to pass on to her and braided into her hair to help her find the courage she needed to do what she needed to do to um, to desegregate the public schools, to go to that school that very first day, and braiding Susie's hair, that's one of your favorite illustrations that you created. Why, why does that resonate so much with you?
4: Well, uh, I mean, it just brought back a lot of nostalgic memories because when I was little, my mom would always sit me down on the floor and braid my hair either the night before or just before I was going to school. So it was really just like, you know, like a common piece in my childhood.
1: So that feels like a, a touchstone from generation to generation in some ways?
4: Yeah, and I think a lot of um, African-American girls can relate to that because it's uh, almost a rite of passage to get your hair braided before you go to your first day of school.
1: So uh, you... You both got the opportunity to dedicate this book. And Haley, I see that you dedicated the book to your grandmother. Can you tell me just a little bit about her?
4: Yes. Um, I dedicated it to my grandma, Lametta Wynn.
1: Um, she just was such
4: a strong person when she was alive. She was the mayor of Clinton, Iowa for twelve years and she was also the first African American female mayor in Iowa. So I feel like she and Susie just have like a common strongness and bravery to like step out of their comfort zone in order to help other people.
1: That is really beautiful. And Miss Rocky, I know you dedicated the book to your grandchildren and reading this book and sharing this book has probably brought you into even more contact with a lot of children. Tell me what reaction has been like as you've gotten to, to read this to audiences of kids. Well, it's really funny and
3: uh, because it's a, it's a bedtime story. I always promote it as that because it did end up a little bit long, but the children are always so engaged. It makes me feel so much better about it. But, um, yeah, it's been great to be inspired by my uh, grandchildren, all of which held, have helped me at some point with the book, either by reading it or just by being them. Sage the Brave is kind of the way I decided to make Susie the Brave. We ha- I have one granddaughter that just will get on roller coasters or do anything that, that nobody else will do. <laughs> so we always call her Sage the Brave. So she was one key component of me, t- the title and the first few verses of the book.
1: So what are you hoping that, that kids who hear this story and read this story will take away from it?
3: I hope that children, mothers, fathers, and grandparents all can find themselves in this book. Um, I get choked up at certain parts of the book because it's, um, it's so empowering to be the grandmother that suggests that everything will be all right. And it's so empowering for the father to know that he's guiding his children in the right direction and doing the best that he can. And it's so empowering for the mother who could identify with being given away or thinking about, maybe not identify, but actually trying to put yourself in that position where you're given as a gift, as an enslaved person, um, well, recently emancipated. So that's what I hope. I hope not just for children, but for everyone can find a, a place in this book or a part of the book that um, they recognize, inspire, or by, are inspired by, or can feel in the story.
1: The fact that Iowa was the first state to end legal segregation of public schools. I mean, that's that's something that fills me with pride. I know it fills a lot of Iowans with pride. But we also know that although segregation of public schools was not legal in Iowa from 1868 going forward, we also know that uh, that wasn't necessarily reflected in reality. And this is... A, a battle that we are still fighting today for equality for all of our children. When you think about that and, and how long ago this took place, Miss Rocky, why do you think it's so important to put this book in the hands of children today? Well, the
3: book will hopefully—I um, just read to some children uh, the other day at Royal Legacy Christian Academy, and it's a diverse— uh, schoolroom, but the diversity isn't because of black children. It's basically kind of reversed. There are like three white kids in the group of maybe 20 of the children. And I was so impressed at these children who knew all about integration, segregation, as well as um, Brown versus the Board of Education. Now, they may have studied it a little before I got there, but that's what inspires me about the children, and I hope that they take away, is that they can look up these words if they don't know it and understand that, that this struggle has been going on for so, so long, and it still goes on. And I've learned through life that these advances that Black people have made seem to come in waves, and I feel like we're riding a wave right now from 2020 and trying to do the best we can as a people, uh, uh, as Americans, and just trying to get um, this wave to keep going and, and making more progress. So I'm hoping that people um, identify with that fact that it's been going on for so long and to try to learn more about
1: how brave this little girl had to be almost 100, well, 100 years ago. Well, and I know that in publishing this book, uh, both the Community Foundation of Greater Muscatine and the Stanley Center, they've given away a lot of copies of this book and are trying to make sure that it can get into as many hands as possible. Uh, Miss Rocky, what do you think the future is just in 30 seconds for this book? Okay. The future is way bright because Susie impacted the future at only
3: 13 years old And I'm thinking that more people are going to want to know this story. More people are going to want to hear this story and fall asleep at night with their mom with candlelight, maybe by the bedside like Susie. And of course, more kids
1: are going to learn to be brave. Miss Rocky, thank you so much. Thank you, Charity, for having me. And Haley Calvin, thank you. Thank you for having me. The book is Susie Clark, The Bravest Girl You've Ever Seen, Desegregating Iowa Schools in 1868. It is written by Miss Rocky, also known as Jocelyn Hickey Johnson, and illustrated by Haley Calvin. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.